Hello, and welcome back to Lamniforms Radio. My name is Ian Corey. I am the singer and songwriter in the band Lamniforms. Joining me today is my old co-worker and current Brooklyn Vegan editor, Andrew Sacker, uh, who joined me to talk about the sudden and messy breakup of the metalcore band Every Time I Die. Every Time I Die were, if you can't tell by their name, part of the American metalcore boom of the early 2000s. Against all odds, they outlasted the majority of their contemporaries without ever having sold out in any real way. Then, very suddenly, uh, about a month ago, they broke up in very public fashion on social media. Uh, So I knew that Andrew was a much bigger fan of the band than I, and when I put out the call to get someone who maybe knew more about this band than I did, I was delighted that he reached out to me. So it was great to catch up with Andrew, and we uh, had a good conversation about the long-lasting influence of Every Time I Die, why they were able to stick it out when so many of their contemporaries didn't, and we also took a bit of time to talk about that when we were young festival announcement that got everyone on Twitter a bit into a bit of a tizzy uh, recently. So I hope you enjoy the episode. It was, it was great having Andrew on. So yeah, big week for the former skinny jeans and white belt crowd, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Um, were you like, did, were you in high school a scene kid or did that is that something you came to later like i mean that was the music i listened to but Mm -hmm. i think scene kid would be a stretch like i didn't have like the straightened dyed hair or like the eyeliner or anything like that i I was sort of like i mean in middle school i was definitely wearing like those rubber hot topic bracelets and like (laughs) um but i still feel like i don't know like scene kid is a stretch but um but yeah, I guess emo kid, I would settle for at least. Uh, sure. Like all, all the bands playing when we were young fest, or at least like 60% of them were like regular rotation for me, middle and high school. Mm-hmm. Where did you grow up again? Are you from New York originally or? Yeah, I grew up in Westchester. Um, gotcha. And we had like a little, we had like spillover from like the Long Island scene, the Jersey scene and the Poughkeepsie scene. I mm-hmm. feel like we kind of like we had a tiny little venue in our town and like there were some national level bands that came through. And so like I was just adjacent to like what was happening in Northeast emo at the time, but also still from kind of like a smaller town. And like, you know, it wasn't like the kids who grew up like on Long Island and could go see like taking back Sunday in a VFW hall before they blew up kind of thing. Right. I imagine though, in my experience, you know, I was in a, a metalcore band in high school where all of the other members lived in Westchester. So I would like take the train up from the city on the weekends to like, you know, go be a, a terrible vocalist and just like <laughs> <laughs> very, very not good metalcore band. Wait, where did you but grow up? I, I grew up in, uh, in Brooklyn. Oh, so okay. it was actually right, like right. all of this stuff was a huge surprise to me when I went to like summer camp before ninth grade, like I had no idea about any of this pop punk or emo or like metalcore stuff until I met kids from outside of the city, you know, from like Long Island and upstate New York and mm-hmm. stuff like that. It seemed like it was much more. And maybe this is like an unfair 
uh, pigeonholing, but it it seems like more of like a suburban genre than like a, a straight up urban. No, genre. for sure. And I actually, as a suburban kid, I think about this a lot. Like that this that I, I guess like you know sort of that disconnect, right? Of like what was mm-hmm. happening in the city in the early two thousands was like the meet me in the bathroom stuff. Yeah, yeah. And like at the exact same time, like literally the exact same time was the whole Long Island, New Jersey emo boom. And I mean, I was into both, but it didn't really occur to me until I got a little older and then also moved to the city, like how many people were just like, I did not know or care about that emo stuff. Like, I thought that was like what everybody who was 12 listened to in 2002. Yeah, it's like there weren't really emo kids at my high school, whereas like there were indie kids, of course, in, in my high school. And that those were the people that I was like hanging out with. And so I always felt like this weird disconnect being like the kid going to like the knitting factory shows where like these scene bands and metalcore bands would be playing. And then everyone else is listening to like Arcade Fire and Modest Mouse and the Strokes and stuff. like well, that. Well, so that's that's the thing like that. Uh, just to backtrack to your scene kid question, like. Mm-hmm. me and like my group of friends we were sort of like both of those things like we were listening yeah. to like all the victory records type stuff but also like arcade fire and modest mouse and the shins so i feel like i we were this like emo indie rock crossover friend group um which like you know again at the time like on a large scale those things were so disconnected and now i feel like those things are a lot more connected like there are so many bands who come out and say like we loved Block Party and Taking Back Sunday or something. But yeah, mm-hmm. that, that was kind of, I feel like I was on that line between like the indie rock stuff and then like the, and also like a big, just like more straight up punk person. Like I just did a big article on Bad Religion, for example. They were like huge for me growing up. So they kind of mm-hmm. had like all those sort of things. Definitely, I feel like by the 2010s, there started to be this blurring of those lines where like the pop punk bands were trying to be more indie palatable or just whether they were trying or not ended up being more indie palatable. Like I think like the, you know, the emo, like the Tumblr emo revival stuff was like basically pop punk. That was like pitchfork friendly. Totally. In in some respects. It was like, so yeah, I feel like it was just like, Oh, like instead of using like auto tune and like drum quantizing and stuff, it was just like pop punk bands with lo-fi recording quality. And so mm -hmm. then they're similar to indie rock bands. And I was just like, to me, I feel like I followed that, sort of crossover a lot in my music writer, you know, path. Uh, that sure. was like very much where my taste would often land. Cause you know, I was like, yeah, like I love pop punk songs and I love indie rock production. And like, you know, at the end of the day, like a lot of this stuff isn't that different, like super chunk were like kind of a pop punk band. Um, but mm-hmm. they were, didn't get called it. And then they get up kids sounded a lot like super chunk, but they got called emo. And so, you know, I was all about like, tearing down those walls and being like, hey, wait, this stuff's like not different. Yeah, exactly. Like you could see either end of the spectrum covering the replacements and it would make sense. Yeah, you know? and like, exactly. And I was like, why are we... And it was weird because like the, like the pop punk and emo kids, their scene would, would be totally cool with an indie rock band coming over, right? Like, but it was the opposite. <laughs> it was like very like, no, like, you know, like any emo band would take a tour with Modest Mouse, but, you know, Modest Mouse, who of course ended up doing that eventually stayed very picky for decades and mm-hmm. right yeah what, what do you think is like the aversion like from the indie perspective on the like the emo pop punk like why do you think there's that that divide why do you think that the the indie scene tried to push that away and like not associate itself so much well i hate to put 
the blame on one website, but I feel like it would be Pitchfork's reviews of emo albums. I mean, uh-huh. like, like Pitchfork gave Jawbreakers Dear You like a two point something. And mm-hmm. like now, like, you know, they're playing that record on tour and it's huge news, including on Pitchfork. And they gave the Get Up Kids something to write home about, like a two point something. I think they might have given like a Promise Ring EP, like a zero point something. Like they were brutal to anything emo. And now a lot of those records are like widely considered classics and they've changed their tune. And like, you know, I don't, I have no hate towards those old Pitchfork reviews. Like if anything, like, you know, I mean, I don't know, getting defensive about that stuff is, like, part of being an emo kid anyway. So, like, I, I'm like, <laughs> what would being an emo kid be if Pitchfork was giving best in music to, like, you know, Victory Records and Ferret Records bands, in, like, in the early 2000s? Like, maybe it wouldn't be as, you know, what it is. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's, like, honestly the big thing. I think there was, they were writing this narrative of, like, it's not cool to be in that kind of band. Like, I mean, Bleed American got, like, a three. Uh, Thursday's Full Collapse got, like, a five. Um, mm-hmm. And they, like, trashed that record and, like, told... They were, like, Jeff Rickley needs to, like, relax. And they said they sound like a shitty version of At The Drive-In or something, which is, like, so far from accurate. So I think they were, like, really drawing, like, these rules of, like, this kind of music's not cool and, like, you know, this other kind of music's so cool... And I think people took that and ran with it. And, like, whether it was conscious or subconscious, they probably, you know, I mean, like, also, like, if you look at so many of the cool indie rock bands from that era, a lot of them, like, the, like this is, like, a meme on Twitter now, but, like, the original drummer of Interpol was in Seisha. Like, right. it, all yeah, Interpol yeah. had to do was write that exact same record and put it out on, like, Jade Tree, and they'd probably be, like, a gothy emo band. Um <laughs> So like, right. I feel like a lot of it was just like what label you were on, who you toured with, what website gave you what score, and all things that had almost nothing to do with what the music ever sounded like. Yeah, it's interesting to think about like what the When We Were Young festival would look like build for the other side of that split. It would look like know? Just Like Heaven festival. Uh-huh. Do you remember okay. that one? So it was... Uh, it's. 2019, it was like Phoenix, Yeah Yeah Yeahs, MGMT, Beach House, Passion Pit, Grizzly Bear, The Rapture, Starfucker, The Faint, She Wants Revenge, Tokyo Police Club. Yeah, <laughs> that's like, exactly. This is like the most like iPod core. Exactly. Yeah. Kind of stuff. That's yeah. That's that's wild. It's interesting that the indie one happened first, and that like this, I guess like you know, it, there needed to be time for like warp tour to truly die off and for the demand to be a bit higher for this, uh, you know, this emo nostalgia festival. What was your like initial response when you first saw that lineup? And well, so one of my, I guess, hot takes is I don't think it's that like, it's not the only festival doing it. I mean, like riot fest mm-hmm. has been booking all those bands for years and nobody has said this had this type of reaction and like when we were young did their first festival in 2017 so this is now five years after the original um and the first one yeah the first one was headlined by morrissey but it was still like the same idea like lots of warp tour old warp tour bands it was a little more indie there was like pinback and mount erie played but like those bands are you know kind of emo adjacent in their own ways sure sure and then, like, I mean, Skate and Surf did a reunion festival in 2015. Furnace Fest did their reunion last year. Like, mm-hmm. to me, it's, like, not unusual. First of all, 
everybody likes what they listen to in high school. Like, you know, like when I was a kid, my parents listened to 70s rock their whole career as parents. Like there was, right. they were never curious about what was happening presently. And like for some reason when it comes to emo kids, I think because there's that strong narrative of like you're supposed to grow out of this, people are like, oh, the emo kids are getting all nostalgic now. I'm like, all right, but that's what everybody does. Like yeah. they're in their 30s. They probably have their own salaries now. And the only difference between this and Warped Tour is that their parents paid for their Warped Tour tickets. Um, so to me, I'm like, these bands have had strong fan bases the whole time. The fans have always liked them. This is not the first festival to book this kind of stuff in recent years. And I think people, I don't know, I feel like people are like kind of like overreacting to the lineup. Like it's it's not out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that the, the real coup is the, the fact that the headliners are bands that you know the like the my chemical romance reunion tour got pushed back because of covid mm-hmm. and paramore have been on a break so having both of those be like the big exclamation points kind of is like the lightning rod that leads everyone to be like this has never happened before right and um, i mean if this was i mean i think it's kind of crazy that they have 60 plus bands playing one day like I think that is the major, like, just to compare, like, in case anyone listening is like, is that a lot of bands? Like, Furnace Fest had, like, 25 to 30 bands a day last year. Mm -hmm. And they had this similar thing, right? Where, like, every band on the bill, you're like, oh, my God, like, I had that CD in 2003. So if they had, like, half the amount of bands, and even that festival was sure to have conflicts that would drive fans insane. So this, I'm just like... How like you're gonna buy tickets wanting this and they're like two hundred fifty bucks for one day. Riot Fest is like one ninety for three days. So like, I think that people are going to be very disappointed when they realize they can't see everything they're gonna want to see. But the idea of having My Chem and Paramore co-headline a festival in twenty twenty two is brilliant. I mean, My Chem's reunion tour is extremely anticipated. They are already booked to headline Riot Fest. They could have headlined Coachella if they were booked. Like they would certainly have their audience for it. Paramore is coming back. Their last record was their best record, I think, and it was certainly their most like acclaimed and to go full circle, the one that the indie press cared about because it was sort of this mm-hmm. new wave record. And then right. coupled with the fact that like everybody who liked Paramore in two thousand five is is like now an adult, and many of those adults are music critics. And so like not only do they put out this like fashionable great record, but a lot of the people in the music industry now like bought the debut in real time. Right. And now have like very strong up feelings about the Olivia Rodrigo song that is sort of a paramour song yeah. and whatnot. And yeah. I love that Olivia Rodrigo song and I love Misery Business and I think they can coexist and it's not a ripoff and it's obviously similar, but like it's, you know, it's a four power chord progression. Like that's what pop punk is. <laughs> they they right. share you can, like, you could find a million examples of other songs yeah. that are kind of similar. Yeah. It's like so unfair to Olivia not to like sidetrack, but like, you know, like, Look at pop. That's what pop punk is. Like every fucking Green Day song is the same chords. It's like you know, like some <laughs> other. And it's just like they get a pass, and then Olivia puts out like the first pop punk hit in like a decade, and people are like, I don't know. It seems like a ripoff. I think it comes down to like that sort of like aging anxiety thing. That the flip side of the you know the millennials that can now pay for their own you know extremely expensive tickets to this one day festival also now feel like a bit of like don't get on my turf for the younger generations that like weren't there to buy the first Paramore record when it was coming out or didn't see My Chemical Romance when they were on their original run. And so Mm. I think that there's a bit of maybe like territorialism when it comes to this thing, which makes the idea of packaging a festival that's specifically 
aiming at your like 2003 CD collection. And, you know, even the, the name of the festival is kind of this like inherently is drawing in associations of like former youth rather than current youth. Uh, I think that's a big a big part of it. It's like we're reaching this curve over where now, you know, when I saw that poster, I was reminded of like when I was in high school seeing these like posters for like hair metal festivals and stuff mm-hmm. like that of like these like it's just the same thing, like just for my generation. It's like the same sort of strategy. Right. Totally. And I do think the name is a huge part of why people are having these reactions like Riot Fest is called Riot Fest. Um, Mm -hmm. and they book a lot of nostalgic bands, but like, they don't market it like, you know, this is an old thing. Like, and again, that's what I like that to me is why I want to stress about Paramore. Like this is going to be a big year for Paramore. They're going to put out their first record in five years. It's probably going to be awesome. And it's not, and they're going to go tour and they're going to play a lot of new music and it's not going to be like, they don't even play misery business anymore. You know, (laughs) like I, I, and I think even with my chem, like obviously it's a reunion tour, but there is a great sort of redemption arc there for them. I think like they broke up when the world was like, we no longer care about the type of music you make. And then they became a really influential band when they were gone. And now they're back to be like arena headliners. Like that's Mm -hmm. awesome. And just to comment on that sort of territorial thing you said, you're probably right about that. I'm the opposite, but I'm also like, first of all, like, I don't know, I'm like an aging music critic, so my opinions are probably not the same as like just regular people. Um, But I don't know, I'm like so stoked to hear like Olivia Rodrigo and like Machine Gun Kelly, like bringing all this stuff back. I'm I'm like, yeah, like I love like early 2000s pop punk. It's important to me. I think it's a great kind of music. It's been Mm -hmm. a bummer that, you know, the mainstream really did turn so hard on like punk derived rock music in general. Uh, so I'm like, hell yeah, bring it back. Like, I'm stoked. I don't I don't want to, like, be mean to Olivia Rodrigo or, like, Machine Gun Kelly or Halsey or whoever is making, like, these rock records on a pop level. I'm like, this is great. Like, where would I be without, like, Blink-182? Like, if they weren't on TRL, I might not have found that band as, like, a child. You know, like, and yeah. then, like, that's such a direct line to, like, Descendants and, and like, Black Flag and stuff. And I think totally. it's, it's cool to have, you know, those gateways really visible. And then you, you know, if you're interested in it, you go further. And if you're not, then it's a phase. But, you know, for a lot of us, it's not a phase. So, yeah, I I think even, you know, if some of my listeners who are not or were not pop punk fans should see this like return of pop punk in a in a better light. Like this is not a bad thing, because even if you don't like these new artists, there's going to be kids that also don't like them and are going to go find more obscure, older or like more weirder uh, harder rock music to define themselves in opposition to the popular stuff. So there's kind of like this knock on effect of even this popular rock music returning will make not popular rock music more popular as a result, you know? I hope so. I mean, I, and it also like, you know, that kind of makes me think of like the whole sort of turnstile conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like does a rising tide lift all ships? Like, uh, and I hope, like, if we see, like, Olivia Rodrigo and, like, Machine Gun Kelly and people making pop punk popular and then making people sort of react negatively to that and be like, if you think that's punk, listen to this. And then all of a sudden, like, I mean, that's what happened in the early 2000s. Like, right. Blink and Sum 41 and stuff were the huge. And then people started paying really close attention to, like, Fat Records and Epitaph Records and Victory Records. And, like, mm-hmm. I mean, like, Taking Back Sunday 
or on an independent label that two years earlier was known for like Earth Crisis and Hatebreed, and they became like as big as Blink One Eighty Two overnight. Like, right. That's right. like kind of if you think about it in hindsight, like that's totally nuts. So I make that statement to kind of segue ourselves into the sure. main topic of conversation because I think if you were a person that was maybe not feeling pop punk around that same time and wanted something a bit harder, you probably would have maybe gotten into the metalcore scene in the early, you know, early 2000s. And, you know, the weird thing about this festival announcement is it came pretty much like, what, 24 hours after the band Every Time I Die very loudly and messily broke up basically in the public eye. So strange contrast, and it sort of throws into sharp relief how unlike a lot of the bands, like you mentioned the sort of redemption arc of, of my chem, like during that entire stretch, every time I die, just kept trucking. Like they, regardless of whether people cared or not in the, the mainstream, they kind of just played through the whole thing and have this like giant catalog that by comparison, most of their contemporaries have almost nothing like, you know? So how, how did you first get into every time I die? Like what was your first impressions? Like, Sure, What's your history yeah. with the band? Um, I heard them around the time Hot Damn came out. And uh-huh. um, again, I was just like, at that point in my life, I was getting into anything that fell under the umbrella of punk. And like, I say mm-hmm. that in the most vague way possible. Like everything from Thrice to Flogging Molly to Catch 22. Like if it was like a band that was at all related to like that, you know, just so yeah, so metalcore was, you know, I had like a Ferret Records comp back in the day. Um, I was definitely into like some of the other metalcore stuff. But every time I die were cool, I, Hot Damn I thought was a good record. And then honestly, Gutter Phenomena is what really sold me. I think in hindsight, I can see that Hot Damn is of course the more important, more influential record. And it's mm-hmm. it goes down a little easier for me now than it did when I was like 12 or something. Um, Because it's, like, obviously a bit more raw and a bit more aggressive compared to Gutter, which was, like, more polished and had these real melodic choruses. And I'm a little, like, cheesy pop-punk emo kid, so I was like, yeah, this is great. Um, So so Gutter Phenomena was definitely, like, whoa, this band is, like, totally my thing. And honestly, like, I mean, they were definitely my favorite metalcore band at the time. I didn't say it that way. I don't know if I used that word even yet. But I definitely was like, this is 100% more for me than like Kill Switch Engage or Unearth or something. Like it was like, this was speaking to me. And, you know, and, and looking back on why, it's not hard to tell. I mean, you listen to their first record, they're totally ripping off Glassjaw. Um, <laughs> and then they really become their own band, like I think even on the next album. But like, Every Time I Die were pulling from Glassjaw and like a lot of the other metalcore bands were pulling from like Lamb of God and stuff like that. And like, so every time I die, I think always made more sense with like the post hardcore world anyway. Mm-hmm. So that I loved gutter phenomena. That was like, that's, I got that CD around the same time I got like my learner's permit and that just didn't leave the car. And it was so awesome. And big dirty was another great record. That was the next one. Like it just kind of kept it going. And then when new junk aesthetic came out, this says way more about me than it says about every time I die. This is like 2009. I was 18 and I was just distancing myself from like anything Warped Tour related. I was getting into like Fleet Foxes and Bon Iver and like, like not trying to be like, I, I fell victim to the narrative that Pitchfork or whoever tried to create, right? Like screamy right, bands right. aren't cool. 
choruses shouldn't be whiny, like production shouldn't be good. Um, so <laughs> like, uh, I was like, no, like, I don't like that stuff. And I distanced myself from like a lot of bands that I actually would have, that I did like if I was being honest, but like at the time I could not see past like, you know, the sort of stereotypes and the, like what the judgment that people would have. And like, so I kind of like distanced myself from every time I die. And, um, did not hear their next few records in real time. But a few years ago, I, well, over the past, like, just, to, and you can stop me if you're like, we don't need to know this much about your listening habits. No, no, go um, for it. This is great. But I, I, I very much like, and, and actually, so this, this conversation is being recorded two days before the 10th anniversary of Cloud Nothing's Attack on Memory. Um, oh, and wow. yeah, and I Jesus. just, I have a piece written on that, which by the time this airs will be public. So that album's fresh in my mind. And for me, that was like the big bang of like, oh, it is cool and totally fine to like that kind of music. Like I, Cloud Nothings would never identify as an emo band and they weren't really called one at the time. And they certainly came out of like a way hipper, like lo-fi kind of scene. But that record is like a post-hardcore emo record. Like it re immediately reminded me of like old Sunday Real Estate when I first heard it. And I was mm -hmm. like, and it was like, their most acclaimed record like the 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 hip indie press who was not caring about you know those bands i liked as a kid they were telling you this is good and i was like blown away that that happened and it was only six months later that japandroids put out celebration rock and got even more acclaimed for that than their debut which again was kind of grouped in with that lo-fi noise pop fuzz pop thing and i'm like celebration rock is like very much a pop punk record uh, and again, it really goes back to what you said before, like take these exact songs and have like Blink-182 record them with Jerry Finn in like a huge studio. Like it's going to sound like a lot of Anima of the State. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was like, wow, yeah, like people care about this and it's OK and you don't need to be ashamed. And that really sent me to um, I already had like I'd already been aware of bands like Touche Amore and like La Dispute and Defeater and Piano to Come to Teeth, Title Fight. And I knew what they were doing was like interesting. And I like I kind of was into it because I was like, oh, shit, there's like this new wave of bands who like kind of like bring it back to like before Thursday blew up. And uh, right. and they're awesome. Uh -huh. And I was like really into that. But it was definitely like something I felt like I almost had to keep separate from like my like hipster music life um and i say that with like the complete like the most amount of like tongue-in-cheekness possible but um and then i was like wait a minute like i, I think if like if cloud nothings and japandroids can be like critically acclaimed bands like so can title fight and then like i got really into like that this was 2012 it was like the menzingers put out on the impossible past joyce manor put out their second record um, which is very underrated and good, but also it brought a lot of more attention to their first record, which is like hugely important now. Uh, and that that sort of moment set me on this path to like what eventually became known in the mainstream press as emo revival. And so as I sort of followed the path of like bridging this gap between, I guess we'll just say Warp Tour, Hot Topic, MySpace, Alt Press music, and like pitchfork blah blues a coachella music you know like which again like if you look at their history like i mean a lot of these bands actually played those festivals like thursday played coachella in like oh four so it's like right. even yeah, like yeah. even telling that history now is like still your certain aspects are still being rewritten like you're like no actually thursday did play coachella so that's not anyway i digress point being <laughs> i keep going and i have i eventually got really into like the kind of new wave of metalcore with bands like knocked loose and see you space cowboy uh, and wrist meat razor and like mm -hmm. 
the those... sort of math core revival that's happened within yeah. the last like four and like five I feel years. like yeah. they were similarly to the way that like like Touche Amore, I feel like we're taking what Thursday did on a mainstream level and connecting it back to like the nineties underground screamo bands that Thursday were influenced by, rather than connecting mm-hmm. it to a band like Hawthorne Heights or something, uh, who were like basically pop punk with screaming. I feel like a band like Not Loose took what was happening in like the early 2000s metalcore boom, which was very mainstream, but connecting it back to like Botch and Old Converge and Old Cave In and like stuff like that. Um, And I was like, oh shit, this is cool. They're doing to metalcore what the bands I love were doing to like emo and post-hardcore. And I just love that concept. So like Mm -hmm. by, honestly, it was, you know, Knock Loose put out a different shade of blue and I fell in love with it. And Keith Buckley had that awesome verse on that record. And I was like, damn, Keith Buckley still got it. Like, and like, it, <laughs> it like sent me back to like my old Every Time I Die records. And then I kind of like got caught up. I was like, I listened to like From Parts Unknown for the first time and like X Lives. And I was like, these guys, like you said earlier, like they're making great records in the 2010s when all of their peers had either broken up, stopped making good records or just like fizzled out in some way. Like they were mm. really, not just did they not break up, but like they're making records that were rival rivaling like their classics and then i mean i radical is like i honestly think it might be their best record like i was so ready for it because of everything i sort of had just said like i was just like okay yeah when they put out a new record like it's gonna be a big deal if not like i maybe i'm projecting onto the world but at least for me like this is gonna be the first every time i die record since an entire scene that they inspired popped off positioned them as like influential elder statesmen mm-hmm. and like the first time the first new record since i've realized how much they've continued to like rip the whole time so and then i heard those first two singles in december of 2020 and i was like holy shit this is like definitely some of the best every time i die music since like gutter phenomena i thought and then the album is those two singles, as good as they are, like still couldn't prepare me for how good Radical is. I, it's just like it's the ultimate every time I die record. It's it's got everything they've ever done and more, and that's what made this so heartbreaking. <laughs> I'm like, you guys just put out like, like I mean, to, like to to similar to sort of like tell like that Paramore story, right? Like I'm like I feel like this is almost the every time I die record that like solidifies their legacy as not a nostalgia act, but like uh-huh. a lifer band, like. Um, I think people might argue they'd already done that and I totally get that and I'm totally speaking from my personal experience and you know I wish I would have like reviewed low teens in 2016 and like saw it happening then but I do think like Radical came at the exact right time and it was way better than even their biggest fans were expecting and it just makes the whole thing like so sad. Yeah I there's there's a, a bunch of different stuff that you brought up that I'd I'd like to kind yeah, of yeah. touch on. So specifically that moment that you're describing in 2009, where you kind of switched more or started leaning more towards the indie side of things. I remember that kind of being the time where a lot of that metalcore stuff got like really overproduced. You know, like there had been this kind of underground good cop bad cop vocals big breakdowns scene in the 2000s that 2008 we get like attack attack we get all the the auto-tune vocals and the synth elements and all of that and suddenly these metalcore bands are like the rise records scene really pops off and that i think also made it 
extremely uncool to like the other metalcore stuff because of how overly polished and overly uh, mainstream the genre was attempting to become. And to Every Time I Die's credit, they they didn't follow that path. They just kind of kept doing their own thing, obviously with like tweaks on every record, but they were neither like, they didn't break up and vanish with the 2000s, but they didn't necessarily change with the times to chase trends in the 2010s either, uh, which makes them, I think, like a, a unique case. And going back to the the moment that you were describing when you first discovered them and the way that they stood out against the other metalcore bands of their their contemporary era, I feel like one of the big things is that they, you're right, that they were more of a post-hardcore band. They never did like this sort of watered down Swedish death metal thing that a lot of the other bands at the time were doing, right. which was like how I got into metalcore. I was coming from being more of a metal fan. So when I heard bands like Darkest Hour or, you know, even though I'm not a huge fan of them, like the Black Dahlia Murder, that kind of stuff where it's like, more like, harmonized thirds and then there's maybe a small breakdown whereas yeah every time i die we're coming more from this legacy of northeast chaotic brutal like converge dead guy all that kind of stuff the totally. really messy and insane panic chords and that that's like a, almost they're they seem like completely separate genres that just happen to be playing all the same shows together yeah it's actually weird like um i have a friend i talk about this with and he's like curious about metalcore, um, mm-hmm. and he's like, um, he's like, can you like explain to me like why some metalcore bands t- that you act like they're punk bands and some you act like they're metal bands? And I'm like, yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> it's like it's hard to do, but I'm like, you know, it's like Kill Switch Engage is a metal band, and mm-hmm. See You Space Cowboy is like the punk scene, like, yes. um, yeah, yeah. and it just is, and it just makes sense if like, and it's just so hard to explain if you're like, why are they both metalcore? And, you know, like, you know, look, we do this, right? We make lists based on genre. So, like, if you're making, like, best metal albums of 2021, like, is CU Space Cowboy on that list? Are they on, like, a punk and post-hardcore list? Are they on both? Like, you know, like, these kinds of conversations happen, and uh, I don't really always know the answer, but it's I feel like it's just a feeling, you know? like Definitely. My attitude is, like... It's it's a demographic thing. It's like who, you, what genre you fall into almost matters more by like who is listening to you, yeah, than it does like what kind of music you're playing. Like, I think about like Marissa Nadler doesn't write metal music, but tons of metalheads love Marissa Nadler. So like she's almost like culturally a metal artist by, you know, no fault of her own. And every time I die, it's interesting because like yeah, they they feel like a punk band. They mm-hmm. also feel like a post hardcore band. They like. I know that there's the kind of guy that maybe is into Mastodon and the Mars Volta might also be into Every Time I Die. There's like, they seem to kind of fit into a variety of different overlapping scenes without being pigeonholed into any exact one of them. Right. Which maybe partially explains their longevity. And I think explains like why they're so good and unique. Like, I mean, I remember, so like they were definitely as I was distancing myself from that world, like I was saying, like they hung in there longer than some other similar bands. Like, you know, just for example, like I, I, I'll be honest, like when I was a kid, I was kind of into like a Treyu. Um, and I was like very not into a Treyu way before I had sort of, you know, like, like every time I die, like they, they stuck around for me. 
Uh, and, you know, I was like, damn, I want more metalcore bands like Every Time I Die. And now that they've broken up, there's a lot of people on Twitter being like, oh, like, you know, this band and this band and that band sort of carry the torch. And, like, it kind of hit I keep thinking about this, and it hit me the other day. I'm like, I think what makes them so good is, like, I've spent 15 years looking for another band like Every Time I Die, and I still haven't found one. And mm. I feel like I would have found one. You know, <laughs> like, they were, like... They were definitely, like, you know, surface level, like, I feel like Maylene and the Sons of Disaster were, like, surface level kind of doing, like, that southern rock meets metalcore thing that Every Time I Die were doing on, like, the Big Dirty, but they're not really a band overall who really are like them, and I do think that that's, like, because, you know, there are some people, of course, with Every Time I Die's breakup being a big deal, being like, oh my god, who cares, like, why are we talking about this band, like, who even is this, and then, like, I'm like, well, the reason people feel really strongly about this is because they're such a special band. And, like, I, to me, like, as far as metalcore goes, like, I look at them the way I've looked at Converge for a long time. Like, they're just complete originals, like, individuals in a world where, like, I mean, like, you know, when you talk about, like, the best metalcore records of the 2000s, it's like, you're a fool to not name Jane Doe, but also you kind of seem foolish acting like Jane Doe is somehow the same genre as any of those other ones, right? Like, it's like, so I feel like they've become like a converge kind of like, we're just who we are. Like, yes, we do fit with metalcore, or we do fit with post-hardcore, or punk, or even emo, or whatever it is, like, and yeah, we could take a tour with like a real deal metal band. We could take a tour with like a pop punk band. It's all, I mean, look at the lineups for the Tid the Season. They have like Circuit Survive, Ice T. Like it just runs the gamut. Like, and it all works. Like it's cool. Like, so yeah, I feel like they're just, they've really carved their own path. And they were doing that carving like in that moment you were describing where like they weren't following metalcore trends. They weren't following non metalcore trends. They were sort of like making their world. And, you know, a lot of people were definitely paying attention. People like me, unfortunately, weren't at the time. But now, like, we see, I see what they've built. And I'm like, oh, so now I get it. Like, you were building this when, like, again, Rise Core took off and uh, and all that kind of stuff. And Yeah, I, I think, are you a Mario Kart person at all? I'm not really a video game person. Okay, uh, good for you. <laughs> Sadly, I am. One of, one of the things about like Mario in Mario Kart is he's got this like very balanced stats where he's like not the fastest, but he's very like even uh, loadout in terms of like his, his statistics. And I feel that way a bit about every time I die too, where it's like there were bands with bigger and heavier breakdowns. There were bands that were way more technical, like Dillinger and into the boat and all that kind of stuff. There were bands that were way more melodic, like Atreyu or what have you. But they had just enough of all of that to appeal to like someone that is like going to shows to mosh, someone that wants to sing along, someone that like wants to learn how hard the riffs are without like scaring away the other parts too. Like they struck this really interesting balance of you know, not being pigeonholed into any one part of the the metalcore subgenre. They seem to just kind of like drive straight down the middle. And as you said, they they have this reputation as being more influenced by Southern rock. I actually, I, I just went, went back and like listened to their whole discography. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know necessarily where people are getting that from. It, to me, it sounds more like Van Halen, like the parts that they're describing that they have these like, you know, really kind of like, shuffled or you know up tempo and all these like offbeat accents and 
the kind of bluesier tone to Keith's vocals that he sometimes takes. To me, mm-hmm. it sounds like a metalcore band doing like an early Van Halen thing of just like very fun, high energy rock and roll. But you're right that it, it kind of got like described as Southern rock, which I think is interesting. I, I kind of hear it on, on gutter phenomena and the big dirty, especially, I mean, uh-huh. some of those riffs, like, um, what's the one that's in guitar hero, the new black, like, and like, and it's like, right. I feel like it's kind of got that like bendy bluesy, like, uh, I mean also like if we're really going to go there, like the concept of Southern rock in itself is sort of a funny thing to think about because like mm-hmm. if all rock comes from blues and blues comes from the South and like is Southern rock not redundant. Um, right. yeah, yeah but yeah. like, but I, but I do feel, I hear it. I'll be honest. I do. Like I, I've always thought it was interesting. I'm like, yeah, they're from like the most North possible. And like, they definitely do. Like they've got that like Atlanta sound like, okay, actually. Yeah. If I, if there's one band out there who I'm like the closest thing to every time I die, I'd say the chariot. Um, but oh, also, yeah, yeah. yeah, but they are also so incredibly unique and individual. And so like, that's, what makes them even in the running is that like they're also like kind of unparalleled but they are of course from atlanta and i feel like they're atlanta-ness and every time i die's buffalo-ness like there's some shared dna despite the miles between sure yeah i think of like he is legend and uh what was that band uh fight paris was that what they were called i've never heard of that band actually oh man well there was this kind of like trend of the metalcore bands at the time having this kind of like party rock yeah. You know, whiskey drinking, mm-hmm. you know, reckless Southern man out of control on stage kind of energy like the the chariot have a bit of that, too. And Norma Jean before them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, every time I die, like, I mean, for a long time, they were like a drinking band. Like, yeah. And that, I think, is another thing I love about Radical is like I have no issue with every time I die is like drinking lyrics. I think they're actually like as far as drinking lyrics go they feel like very mature and they hold up well and they don't make me cringe like some other bands do. But, you know, Keith got sober and, you know, I, whatever anyone's personal decision is, I don't think one, I'm not trying to say one is like morally superior, but he just is not going to write that anymore. And so he writes his record with these like songs about systemic racism and a song about Mm -hmm. his sister dying um, at a very untimely age and like all this like really powerful stuff and I'm like, whoa, this is like from the guy who wrote like when in hell we do shots at the bar, you know, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. like, and I think that makes it speak even more volumes because it's just like you watch that maturation happen and you're like, whoa, like that's a long way to go. Cause like, I mean, I don't know, like that's a big deal. Like, it's like, you know, when Blink-182 stopped singing about like fucking their dad or something like that was <laughs> like, that was like, a, you know, like, whoa, you guys can mature and do different stuff. You know, it's like, a, it, it makes it a little more special than like starting out that way. And also just mm-hmm. never, never ending there. And just like always kind of, you know, maybe being a more to go back to that emo nostalgia thing. Right. That's a lot of it is the lyrical content is maybe geared towards younger people. And then like an album like radical for me, I'm like, this means as much to me as a 30 year old as like gutter phenomenon meant to me as a 15 year old, if not more, and that I think is really rare for any band, but especially a band in a scene where the world is constantly trying to tell you like, this is something for teenagers and you grow out of it. Yeah. I've, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, Keith Buckley's lyrics and his kind of persona, because I think it's a big part of why the band was so popular and why they endured and also has become sort of the lightning rod for discourse around their breakup. 
listening to their discography, I was struck by like early on, he comes across as like the smartest person at the bar, mm-hmm. you know, like he's, he's there to get wasted, but he's like able to express himself better than anyone. and has this kind of like wry self-awareness about how he's fucking up his life in some yeah. ways. And that strain of being like slightly self-critical and self-aware carried through their entire career and changed like, I feel like about like new junk aesthetic and X lives, he was starting to be self-critical about what it even means to be in like a long lasting metalcore band Mm -hmm. and like what the toll of being in this band was like taking on his life. And I think that that sense that you're describing of fans growing up with them and, you know, cause there, there, there's bands like, corn that just write about the same thing forever and Mm -hmm. it's like how much of the how much of this is relevant to me as i'm growing up with them or are they constantly just speaking to my 14 year old self right versus a band like every time i die it's like yeah this guy is growing up in the public eye like he started it as like a 19 year old and now by the end of it he's like an adult and you can hear that every step of the way Mm -hmm. and i feel like as a listener and i guess as someone who writes about music every day. I lately, like, as, I mean, so I, like, turned 30 this year, so I feel like you turn 30 and your brain starts, like, thinking about aging in all kinds of new ways, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, like, I have really developed, like, a huge appreciation for bands that can show real longevity because, like, first of all, we've just seen so many bands not be able to do it. And then also mm-hmm. just as a person, right? Like, Like, just to go back to that whole thing of, like, when I said, like, it's not weird to go see, like, a band you liked when you were 15, when you're 30, that's what everybody does. But, you know, like, people like you and I, who, like, sort of dedicate our lives to, like, looking what's happening in music, like, we can't do that. Like, you have to, like, stay up to date and, like, in a way that's natural. And so, like, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel almost like as, like, a listener and, like, journalist or critic or whatever you want to call it, like, you know, like, you have to develop like you have to like age gracefully um and so like when i see like like uh, my radical was one of my absolute favorite records of last year another record that was also very high up for me was the new manchester orchestra record um and andy hull from manchester sings on the every time i die record and so because of that obvious connection those records were sort of related in my mind but also Mm -hmm. like conceptually i mean that manchester record have you heard that record i haven't i've actually like never really checked that band out I love them. Um, you, I recommend their whole discography. Uh, okay. But I would check the new record out. I, I think it's awesome. And their debut album was humongous for me when it came out in 06. Like, hugely important. And I'm uh, with the new one, I'm like, wow, like, the new one might be their best album. And that was like, and it's so different. Like, it's his voice is very distinct, which I always think, you know, when a singer is good enough to, like, not only, like, have range and good melodies but also like sound like nobody else in the world like that's always Mm -hmm. going to help a band (laughs) um so like first like anything he sings on you know it's him so they have that going for them but the their first record is like this indie rock record that was slightly emo adjacent and i think that's why they sort of got grouped they're playing when we were young fest even though like they sound so much more like I mean, originally, like, they sounded more like the Decemberists or Frightened Rabbit or Neutral Milk Hotel or something that were bright eyes, like, who were also playing. But, you know, like, they had that, like, that folky, nasal-voiced, classic indie rock kind of vibe. Uh, But there was just enough, like, you know, teenage emotion there to make people 
group him in with emo and stuff. So they had that. But this new record, they've got like these like glitchy like electronic art rock like kid A type stuff going on, and mm. it's like so it's musically like such a progression. And lyrically too, and it's like a similar thing. I'm like, wow, like this guy, like, and he, Andy Hull started in Manchester and he was like 17 or 18. So I'm like, we have watched him become an adult. And for those of us who were close in age to him, we've kind of aged like at a similar rate at, you know, like, so like, and again, he is, his music speaks to me now the way it did 15 years ago. And I really like, in a way, I think this makes me sound out of touch, kind of, because, like, if music is supposed to be, like, so youth-oriented and, like, you know, like, I don't know, like, what I, if I was, like, when I was a teenager, if someone was telling me, like, the newest Soundgarden record was better than Bad Motorfinger, like, would I be, like, that's nuts and impossible? You know, like, <laughs> um, like, um, so, like, I don't know, like, if I, I almost, by default, sound out of touch, but watching them make this record that, like, feels like, a true addition to their discography, like, potentially better than the early stuff. I admire it, and it makes me wonder, like, why do we get so caught up on the early... Like, I was just... I have a group chat with friends, and we're all talking about Every Time I Die recently, and my, one of my friends said, he was like, is Radical really their best record? Like, I, I kind of think it is. And I was like, I definitely think it is. And my other mm -hmm. friend was like, it's obviously Hot Damn. Are you kidding? Like, he was like, how could it not be Hot Damn? Like, it could never be anything besides Hot Damn. And I'm like, why do we do that? Like, why are we so convinced that, like, people, or even you say, like, oh, you know what? Like, I think the new Every Time I Die record is better than Hot Damn. Somebody's like, whoa, that's, like, a big take. But, like, if you say so, I'll consider it. Like, it becomes... Such a hot take to suggest that maybe a band has gotten better after doing what they do for 20 years. Like, we assume, yeah. like, they're going to peak on year four, and it's going to be all downhill from there. And if you suggest otherwise, like, hot take, unless it's Radiohead. But, like, I, I don't Why do we do that? Like, I don't know why. I think it's like there's a premium put on... Uh, novelty and youthfulness in a lot of this music culture, kind of like what you're describing about how there's this perception that like the music that we like when we're 15 is the music that we're going to like forever. Mm. We also then kind of assume that like the music that people make when they're like just coming out and just making this first impression on the world is going to be their best. And like, it's not true in my opinion. Like I, I am not like a, every time I die, die hard. But in my opinion, I think they got better in the 2010s. Like the drunk so. aesthetic through low teens. is like, those are the records that I think are by far their best. Their early stuff is cool. Like I was there for it. It was, it was fun. You know, like I like hot damn and gutter phenomenon are, are, are good records from that era. But I, I would say that, you know, that was when like converge was the best band in the world. And mm -hmm. you know, th this, the second phase of their career, they just sounded so much more like confident in who they were. Like they'd sort of like let go of the, the, the glass jaw pressure and the, mm -hmm. the botch pressure and just became every time I die, you know, like they survived to become themselves. And, right. and, and I think you can really hear that in the, you know, that stretch leading up to radical. I'm not as hot on radical as you are, but I think like, it's what I liked about radical is that it's actually sounds like they were adding a ton of new stuff to their sounds. Like mm -hmm. it's the easily the most breakdown oriented, like big chunky, slow kind of mid paced riffs that I felt like were not so much their sound before, but it's like, Oh, this band is still trying stuff up until their very last record. They're, they're tinkering with the formula. You know, you mentioned the, uh, tid the season, mm -hmm. which is their, 
their yearly like holiday hometown show in Buffalo. And I think that that's another strand of their, uh, their identity and their longevity that, uh, I find really interesting is like the degree to which they were really dedicated to being a Buffalo band mm-hmm. and being kind of just slightly off the beaten path. You know, they didn't move to LA, they didn't move to New York or even Atlanta or something like that. They really wanted to rep this like smaller and kind of grimy and like unpleasant city in a lot of ways. Like no, right. no offense to the residents of Buffalo. I think it's like, you know, a part of the, the cultural grit of buffalo is it's kind of a shitty place to be for a lot of the year and i think that's like really charming like they they kept doing their own thing they stayed true to their roots they like followed much more of like this kind of classic idea of what like a hardcore band should be they're like a local product and they they never sounded like they were aiming to be anything bigger than the best version of themselves and I also think it's fat, like they you know i mean buffalo metalcore is a thing right i mean earth crisis mm-hmm. snapcase like they put on for Buffalo Metalcore. I feel like it's almost funny to think about them in that lineage because they took it so far. But like, yeah. you know, like, the, I mean, Snapcase played to the season and like, I know Dead Guy's from Jersey, but like, you know, there's so many pictures of like, every time I die, his bass is wearing a Dead Guy shirt and Tim Singer is on low teens. And like, they like repped for those really underrated bands that inspired them as as far and as famous as they got. And I feel yeah. like that's similar to, you know, like keeping it real with Buffalo. That's I mean, that Buffalo is like a hub for metalcore, I think. Um, and it's just it's interesting how they because, you know, like when I think about Buffalo metalcore, if you say that phrase, like the first thing I'm like, Earth Crisis. But like, mm-hmm. but then I'm like, well, are wait, they from like, Syracuse? Oh, are they from? OK, maybe. But maybe, like Western. Let's New just York say upstate metalcore. New York then. Right. Yeah. Like, but Snapcase is from Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Um, so at least I'm not completely wrong, but, uh, but yeah, you know, like that, uh, I mean, upstate New York in general, I think it's, it's, it's a fascinating like segment of like the way we were talking about a Long Island emo and New Jersey emo, like Buffalo had kind of the metalcore stuff. I also wanted to say about Tid the Season being part of their legacy. Another thing Tid the Season reminds me a lot of is, uh, Dia de los Deftones. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. And I feel like. Like, in my mind, there are a lot of comparisons to make between Every Time I Die and Deftones, just about how, like, I mean, you know, Every Time I Die came from Metalcore and Deftones came from New Metal, and they never broke up and they never made bad records, and, like, they've completely transcended those worlds. And now, like, I mean, Deftones, again, at their festival, they booked, like, Megan the Stallion and Doja Cat. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. like, they're, like, <laughs> just totally, like, and anybody can... Like Def and Deftones are another band that just you know like they cross genre lines so naturally. They've been in it forever. They're mm-hmm. only getting better. They've almost become like they've they've become like a classic metal band in this right. way. You know the fact that there's like the cliche of like teenage girls getting into Deftones now. It's like that's wild to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like and it's 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 a testament to their legacy and the fact that they have a sound that absolutely transcended its origins and they've stuck with it the entire time. Like they've kind of punched through the genre to be just a classic band unto themselves. Right. Like even in like the early 2000s when it was still obvious that Deftones, I mean, I would say Deftones don't even count as new metal. If we're being like really lenient past White Pony, but honestly, like probably not even past around the fur. And, but still like it was even clear then that they were different. But like, if you would have said in 2003 that like, 
Deftones are gonna be like the most important band that were ever called new metal. <laughs> like, um, I, I don't know if that would have been obvious to people. Like, you know, like, yeah. um, but they really like just it's now it's like when people like you know with the whole sort of oh it's okay to like new metal again or for the first time like the first two bands people would admit they liked were Deftones and System of a Down. And like mm-hmm. now it's almost at the point where if you're like, yeah, I like some new metal, I mean, I like Deftones, people are almost like, that doesn't even count. You know, like right. you got to like <laughs> Slipknot or don't even talk to me. Like, <laughs> um, and I mean, just to that longevity conversation too, like I think, you know, to to let a band get there, like, because we as fans don't always do that. You know, sometimes we're like, yes. no, fuck you, break up. Don't like, but like, to even like have the chance to become what every time I die became, what Deftones, what Converge became, it's just like there's so many factors working against you the whole time. So it's like it's just an uphill battle to be a band, and then mm-hmm. like to keep making great records and even maybe better records. Like I think that's like such a big reason like why it hurts so much for so many people. Because like you know it would hurt a lot if Deftones or Converge broke up, or if Radiohead broke up. Like especially two months after releasing a record that everybody loved. Um, but yeah. And like, the shame it, is that like, they don't thinking of like the, the closest analogy in terms of scene and uh, longevity and style is like the way that Dillinger escape plan broke up, mm-hmm. which is that they had like a planned final record, a planned series of tours and like this big blowout at terminal five where they like, everyone could get some degree of closure, you know? Whereas I think, Part of the reason that, like, not only is it uh, upsetting for the the fact that they were these like n- like metalcore cockroaches that just survived constant atomic bombs until mm. they you know made it uh, to the 2020s, which is just nuts. But then to have it end on what seems like such a chaotic and like not. It's just like it's such. So we should probably go over some of the details of exactly how all of this went down. Sure. From my perspective, it was like, you know, as you mentioned, Keith Buckley got sober. He's apparently had a lot of issues with his brother, Jordan, who's also the guitarist of Every Time I Die. Those family issues kind of escalated to a point where, you know, to hear either side of the of the the split tell it like insurmountable lawyers got involved you know, the band attempted to tour without Keith and then that ended up not happening because of COVID and all this other stuff. And the fact that all this was being litigated out in the public, it's, it's like the fans aren't able to have that, like we're all in this together, final celebration of the band. Instead, it just like fizzles out right when it seemed like things were going to maybe keep going forever. That's definitely what shocked and hurt me so much. Like just on an extremely personal and selfish level, the first reaction I had was like, but I really wanted to see them this year. Like I was like, I was a hundred percent going to go to the Brooklyn steel show with under oath. And I was looking forward to that show more than almost anything happening in music in 2022. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was just like, I need to see radical songs live. Like I am like, it's going to be such a cathartic moment for me. I must go. And honestly, if they had said to the season is going to be the last thing, I would have rented a car and driven eight hours to Buffalo. Like, and that's the thing. It's like, I can't remember the last time a band 
was such like a volatile situation that they were like, we need to break up now and cancel the tour that starts in a month. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I've gone to several farewell tours. Like you said, they're usually planned. The band says like, we need to call it a day, but before we do, we'll give our fans one last hurrah and you go and it's bittersweet, but you have that memory. Like I went to Thursday's like second to last show in, in New Jersey where they're from. And it was like amazing seeing them there. And like, you know, they're saying all this sentimental stuff on stage and we all know what's happening. And Mm -hmm. like, I never, I was sad to see Thursday go. I also think their last record is maybe their best record, you know, sacrilegious to some, but I'm like, I think it's just like way cooler. And I love Full Collapse, but it's just like they did all this new stuff. Anyway, I digress again, as I always do. But that was such a neat ending. I was like, it's such a bummer that they're not going to make a follow-up to this. And then, of course, they did reunite like four years later and now have been active for like a long time. But it never felt so sad and shocking like every time I die is feeling because like it was so abrupt, so sudden, and like it was the opposite of a farewell tour. It was like we're broken up and we're not going on the tour that we announced like five months ago. And I don't know, like, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think Tid the Season... So because Tid the Season did happen after the sort of public drama that you referenced where they were going to play shows without Keith, but then Keith sort of expressed that, like, he was not in on that plan, and Mm -hmm. then the shows got canceled, and it was like, you know, and it's very, like, of course we don't know the full story and most likely never will, but that's at least what we saw happen. And so even Tid the Season happening felt kind of triumphant, and I do think a lot of people there, I looked at a lot of social media posts, like, because I had FOMO, and... It seemed like it was a very celebratory moment. I watched a lot of videos. The band ripped. Like, you certainly couldn't tell there was tension from the stage performance. And I don't know. I think if they... If they... I'm not putting... I don't want to blame the band. But, like, if they had decided, like, you know what? I don't think we're going to be able to stick it out for that tour. Why don't we say, like, we're doing to the season and that's it? Like... I think that that might have made the ending feel a little neater for people. But again, I think that they have a lot going on and that they can't always put their fans first. But yeah, I I mean, it's like it's it's such a mess because it's like family drama uh, issues with, you know, sobriety and therefore issues with drug addiction, just the the logistics of being in a band in a pandemic, you know, the logistics of being in a hardcore band at all. Like it's such a, a volatile, like combustible situation that it's a shame that it's going out this way, especially because like most of the bands that do dissolve this way usually don't make it 20 years to, to have this happen right. to them. Do you, from your sense, like I remember when Keith first started, you know, telling his side of the story, the, the fan sympathy seemed very much with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this idea that like every time I die isn't every time I die without Keith, which I think is a reasonable thing to say yeah, from a so. fan's perspective. But do you sense that maybe the sympathy has flipped or that the situation has become more complicated? Like where do people, f- where are people landing? To me, it seems like very complicated. And I, I think every time I die is not every time I die without Keith, but it's probably not every time I die without Jordan and Andy either. I mean, right. like, so, like, the four other members said that they plan to maybe still write music and maybe, I guess, do another band. And, of course, I'm interested in hearing that. It, it won't feel like, you know, 
it won't fill the void. I, I, I assume it won't. Um, I, I mean, I hope Keith maybe does something else too. And I also don't think that would fill the void. Like, I think it'll be sure. like when any beloved band splits and, you know, you follow both offshoots and you always kind of wish they'd come back, but like, you do like what you're getting. And we don't, for all we know, like an amazing record might come out of any of these upcoming projects if they do happen. Um, mm-hmm. But the, they, for all the tension that they clearly had under you know, behind the scenes this for years is what Heath is saying. And, you know, I think all of them are saying, um, they also had a lot of chemistry and, yeah. um, I think that they together are a unique thing. And so like, it's very hard to like you, it's not like, I don't think anyone's blaming anybody, you know, like, it's not like a, like a, I don't know, Paul broke up the Beatles kind of, you know, thing like, um, and like, I, I think that it's just like, as far as I feel and like what I sense is that like, you know, all these people are very important to the fans and I just hope that they're all okay. And I, I don't feel like anyone should be blamed. I just like, I feel sympathetic in a way towards all of them because I think all of them have lost something at least. Yeah, I I think that's a the mature perspective on it is it's like I don't actually know any of these people so right. I, I don't feel like it's fair for me to really say like Keith's side of the story is 100% true or the the band's side of the story is 100% true. Like I'm sure it's much more complicated than any of the already complicated stuff that they've described you know yeah. is. Like under, there's business stuff and like managers changing. It's a whole thing, you know, and it's really not I would hope that the fans kind of take like a more bird's eye view perspective and be like, well, something happened that is not really our business and we shouldn't hold individuals in that system as like the villains here. It's just like, it was, it was, there was a larger crack that is not any one person's fault. I know that the wound is still fresh and like we're, we're barely a week out from all of this going down, but do you think that, you know, you mentioned the example of like Thursday getting back together four years later. Like what are, what do you think the odds are of every time I die returning as like the original or the core lineup at some point down the road? I mean, every band reunites. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm not a betting man, but um, I, I would probably feel safe enough putting a small amount of money that they come back at some point i mean mm-hmm. again like you said like right now it probably seems crazy to anybody in the band but years pass feelings subside offers get higher uh fan demand increases and that all those factors come together and a reunion happens like i mean there there are i feel like there are less bands that have never reunited, right? Then, like, mm-hmm. like I mean, the ones who've never reunited are, you can count them on, like, maybe two hands, like, the major ones that people, like, at least sort of want on a high level. And uh, half those are coming back, too. So, um, <laughs> so I feel like, and, you know, like, I think what really feels kind of painful, too, is, like, because they had went for over 20 years, like, I mean, Thursday broke up after roughly a decade. So, like, they came back, still kind of like you know young i guess like like if every time i die is going to be broken up for say 10 years by the time they come back they're going to be like 50 year olds playing metalcore um so it's like there's some level of like you do wonder like even if this breakup didn't happen this way like how much time 
did a band playing aggressive music. But then again, you know, like, Metallica still rip. So, like, you know, like, it's totally possible to be, like, a really heavy band and, like, never, like, you know, like, so, uh, um, it's, I think, you know, it's good to remember those things. Like, it's, it's not, you know, like, the band is not as old as they seem. But I do think mm-hmm. breaking up after 23 years and due to such strong opinions and feelings within the band it makes the probability maybe slightly lower than it would would have been for like my chemical romance for example but i really hope it happens uh, i'll be there wherever it is you know like i've flown to a lot of reunions over the years i will fly to this one if i have to but yeah i don't i don't think it's i think it's more likely than fugazi so right. uh-huh. or no you know what Fugazi, I don't know. It's more likely than the Smiths. I'll I'll do I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, just to close it off, uh, I know we, you've we've mentioned a variety of their records, but if there was one "Every Time I Die" album for someone to start with, maybe not necessarily your favorite or the most important, but like, what's what do you think is the best entry point for someone that's listened to this conversation and is like, hey, I, maybe I should check this band out? Honestly, I'm going to say Radical, mm-hmm. um, because. I don't know if I if we'd be having this conversation without Radical. I'm going to make a parallel because that's usually how I process thoughts. When Brooklyn Vegan was putting together its albums of the decade list uh, for the 2010s, we were trying mm-hmm. to figure out like which Nick Cave album was going to rank the highest. And we ended up going with Ghostine, which was the conclusion to the trilogy of albums he put out throughout the decade. And one of the main reasons we went with Ghostine was we were like, well... The whole thing Nick Cave was doing throughout the 2010s, which another extremely amazing late career period for an artist. Uh, I mean, if you are unaware somehow of Nick Cave, I mean, this is an artist who started out in the 70s. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, the everything he was doing didn't become clear until Ghostine came out. So I was like, is Ghostine definitely better than Push the Sky Away, which has, like, probably the catchiest songs? Is it better than Skeleton Tree, which has, like, maybe the most emotional songs. I don't know, but it was the moment that I saw what was happening, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and so that's how I feel kind of about Radical, like, Hot Damn is more important and influential, but I think if you put Hot Damn on in 2022 and you've never heard this band, like, I don't know if it would be immediately clear why they're worth a 90-minute conversation. Like, um, (laughs) and like, Gutter Phenomena is definitely the one that hit me as a kid the hardest, but I've been going back to their whole discography too. And I'm like, like you said, I think the 2010s records kind of hold up a little better. Uh, I think even the big dirty holds up a little better than gutter phenomena. Um, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And those are the, I mean, gutter phenomena are the songs that like, you know, if you want to talk about when we were young nostalgia, like those are the ones that 15 year old me wants to hear, but I'm like, yeah, I don't know, like X lives. Like to me now as a 30 year old in 2022, like I prefer to listen to this. That would be my for what for the record that would be the record that I would say people should start with. But well, before why don't you say why? Because I want to hear, and then I'll and then I'll you know, kind of like it's the most modernized production of their later stuff. Because I feel like that's the other thing. It's like you go back and listen to Gutter Phenomena. It's like this really came out in two thousand five. Yeah, like totally. It just sounds that way. Mm-hmm. So X Lives is like I think Radical is. I mean, obviously is is the one that sounds the most current. Uh, mm-hmm. production style wise X lives has like the higher production value, the sharpest lyrics, I think of any of their records, in my opinion, I, I, um, I think that that's, 
a good argument to be made there. Yeah, for sure. And it's also like this is maybe a, a, a stupid argument, but it's shorter than Radical too. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the thing that I like about Radical is like even if it, they didn't intend it to be their last record, the fact that it's easily their longest by almost in some cases, like twice as long as some of their other, mm-hmm. uh, their earlier stuff. It's like, it kind of felt like they were laying it all out on the line. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, I mean, especially considering Keith wrote, we should have broke up in 2014, but I'm mm-hmm. glad we didn't because from parts unknown, low teens and especially radical were records that needed to be made. Makes me think that like, they like had to have known that maybe radical would be the last record. Like, yeah. I think if they knew it would, would be, then they would have again planned a farewell tour and on like, but I think they knew like there was certainly a high chance that like they wouldn't be able to do this again, like come together, write songs as a band, like have chemistry. Like I think they knew that like there was a chance. And I think that they went above and beyond for that reason and, that, and I think that's kind of, like, a bit why I picked that one. Because, like, I think whatever you like about Every Time I Die shows up at least once on Radical. So I think mm-hmm. it's kind of, like, even though it's the last record, I think it's, like, a good entry because, like, it's sort of a primer on the band in a way. Like, if you think Hot Damn is the best Every Time I Die record, there are songs like Hot Damn on Radical. Like, Sly would be a really good example. And, like, right, if right. you prefer, like the more like radio friendly like new black type songs post boredom um mm-hmm. and like is it just like there's everything there and more and i think like it's an album it's where like if you listen to it and you're like okay like these few songs were my favorite then here's the next album for you like if you like the really heavy stuff like hot damn or like from parts unknown i think is a really underrated one kurt pollute polluted that record and i think right, that's right. like the heaviest every time i die record of their second half but um but yeah i just think it's like it's kind of got like everything they ever did on that album and it feels to me like the ultimate every time i die album excellent well thank you so much for hopping on and yeah, on such short you. notice and being able to explain this band to people who maybe were not familiar this has been a really good conversation Yeah, thanks. I had a lot of fun. 